The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. What we have been considering in these instructed liturgies is the question, why do we do what we do? But behind that question lies a deeper question. You know, does it matter how we approach worship? And behind that question, we could maybe even ask a little bit more pointedly, does God care? Does God care how we worship? Does it matter in God's eyes what we do here today? As mentioned earlier, our service follows the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, initially compiled by the Archbishop of the sixth century, Thomas Cranmer. In response to this question, does God care how we worship, Cranmer certainly thought so, in explaining why it was necessary for there to be a unique Anglican service instead of the the many services and ceremonies that existed at that time, this is what he says. Our excessive multitude of ceremonies was so great, and many of them so dark, that they did more to confound and darken than declare and set forth Christ's benefits to us. The prayer book service then wants to emphasize from its author himself that you know we can get so caught up with the doings and the happenings of church that we, forget, we can forget what's at the heart of everything, namely Christ's benefits to us in the gospel. For Cranmer then, the purpose of this liturgy, the purpose of a gathered people in worship is to declare and set forth Christ's benefits to us, AKA to preach and present the gospel to people, to preach and present the gospel to people. The prayer book recognizes that when we conduct our liturgy, that when we conduct our worship together, this has a shaping effect on us. It, it forms us into a particular type of people. It is our primary training ground where we learn the rhythms of prayer, where our affections are shaped and directed towards God, and we, where we are fed from Holy Scripture and equipped to go out into the world as worshipers. You know, this is just to say that, that any worship gathering is intrinsically liturgical. You know, even churches that may not call themselves a liturgical church shape and train their people in a certain way during a worship service. You know, other churches may have the model of, you know, they sing a few songs, sermons preached, they sing another few songs and they leave. That is in itself a type of liturgy. The key here is to know what is this or that liturgy informed by? What is it seeking to be mapped onto? Could we say that this is being more informed by some sort of individual consumerism, some sort of Hollywood celebrity, or other modern factors? You know, does it confound and darken our understanding of the gospel? Or is it informed by scripture, the gospel? And does it push our hearts to receive Christ's benefits to us? Throughout our scripture readings, I've tried to approach this. 
You may have thought they were kind of random, especially the numbers passage, a bunch of offerings being made and such. What we can see through these passages though is that there has been an order, or more properly, a progression that tells us how sinful human beings are meant to approach a holy God. What we saw in that numbers passage was there were three offerings made there, right? There was the sin offering, then there was the burnt offering, then there was the peace offering. This also could be known as the sin or the purification offering, the burnt or the ascension offering, and then the peace and the fellowship offering. In that sin offering, one would confess their guilt. They would confess their sins. And in this, they are placing their sins on the head of an animal, a goat or a bull perhaps. And here one says that as I lay my hands on this animal, I am placing my sins to go to death along with this animal. Then there's the burnt ascension offering where the animal burns and ascends as this sweet aroma to God. But this symbolizes access to God as this smoke ascends to God through a representative or a mediator. You see here, the animal not only dies, but approaches God on behalf of the people as a mediator. Here the people are trusting or they are placing their faith in that sacrifice being sufficient to cover those sins confessed. And then lastly, you have the peace or the fellowship offering. There, the fat or the blood would be burned off and waved before the Lord, and they enter now into a joyful feast with others in God's presence. This represents consecration of the people. The people are made holy in their offering, and they can now respond to God through the grace that they have received. I hope you're beginning to pick up what I'm putting down. Embedded in the Old Testament is this pattern of how a sinful person is to approach a holy God, of confession, faith, and grace. Confession, faith, and grace. It's not simply a ritualistic pattern, but it's an intentional and thoughtful and ultimately a theological pattern which invites us into the narrative of the gospel. Zooming in a little bit more closely, what this pattern wants to invite us into is the pattern of repentance. Specifically, the pattern of repentance through a mediator. Now, of course, when you get to the New Testament, we find passages which communicate that this specific sacrificial system of the old covenant of goats and bulls being you know, cut up and burnt, all that kind of stuff, is not needed anymore because Christ stands in that place. When the New Testament would read back into the Old Testament, Jesus is now placed within this progression of how we are meant to pro- approach God as the mediator of a new covenant. This is what I mean when I say that embedded in the Old Testament is a theological pattern of the gospel, or what we could say a liturgical structure, a liturgy which declares and sets forth Christ's benefits to us. Looking back at our morning prayer service, I hope you can see this is exactly what we have sought to do. After we have clarified what we're here to do in worship, this is the first thing that we do as we begin to move forward towards God. We confess our sins. This may seem, you may have thought before, this seems like an awkward or kind of a in your, way, in your face way of starting a service. But this is our sin offering, right? Where we confess our sins before a holy God. We have not only sinned against one another, but we have sinned against God himself. Against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. And rather than placing our guilt on the head of an animal, we place it on Jesus, our mediator of the new covenant which is why we say for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, we are basing our entire hope, our faith, our trust in this sacrifice being acceptable to the Father. And brothers and sisters, 
it most assuredly is. This is the basis of our assurance, that our guilt has been placed upon the sinless life of Christ. He not only lays down his life for us, but he approaches God on our behalf, on my behalf, and his righteous life is accepted before a righteous God. His perfect life stands in the place of my imperfect life. His righteous life stands in the place of my unrighteousness. We then are led in confidence to believe those words of assurance that if the sinner has placed their faith and trust in Christ, we may be forgiven all of our sins because we trust that this once and for all sacrifice was, is, and forever will be sufficient to cover all of my sins. If we have truly confessed our sins, placed our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we are now at peace with God through this gift of grace. What this now enables is that joyful feast that we were always meant to have with others in God's presence as we move forward in hearing God speak to us, singing his praises, praying for our family, our brothers and sisters, and ultimately awaiting to be sent back on mission into the world. This consistent progression of worship shows us that when we approach a holy God, we're not just looking for you know, any traditional structure. We're not just looking for something that we're familiar with or something that we grew up with or the denomination we're most used to. We are looking for structures that maintain a commitment to the doctrine of repentance because it's through the doctrine of repentance that we receive the benefits of the gospel, namely our forgiveness in Christ by his once and for all sacrifice on that cross. Our hearts are fickle and deceitful and all too often hardened by the brokenness of this world. And we so easily will turn to love things rather than the creator of those things. And these patterns of repentance that our service reinforces reminds us that when we turn away from trying to satisfy ourselves through the things in this world and turn towards the only thing that can quench our thirst, Christ himself, we not only find comfort and assurance for our broken souls, but repentance empowers us to continue to live for God not through some legalistic obedience, but through the power of a new and greater affection for God. Repentance through a mediator is then that linchpin of our liturgy because it is the linchpin of the Christian life. By this I mean it is the door that opens up everything else in our lives. Martin Luther's very first thesis out of his 95 says as such, when our Lord and Master Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. And I hope this encourages you perhaps this morning or any morning you walk in these doors or in fact, any morning you seek to turn to the Lord. God's arm is never too short to save. There is no sin, there is no insecurity, there is no struggle with your marriage, there is no amount of despair that God isn't already aware of and that he hasn't already paid for on the cross. All he wants for you is to come and find comfort and rest for your weary soul and to receive that gift of grace. 
This liturgy of repentance shows us that contrary to what we might believe about repentance, it's not so much about dwelling on your sins, you know, feeling down about yourself, but it is about maximizing the beauty of Jesus. Liturgy is about declaring and setting forth Christ's benefits to us. It is about preaching Jesus deep into our souls, and anything that distracts us from doing so, we should be willing to reject it. As one medieval theologian, Bernard of Clairvaux, once wrote so beautifully, all the food of the soul is dry, if not soaked with that oil. It is tasteless, if not seasoned with that salt. If you write, it has no savor for me, unless I read Jesus there. If you argue or converse, it has no savor for me, unless Jesus resonates there. Jesus is honey in the mouth, music to the ear, rejoicing the heart. Just as in Holy Communion, in morning prayer, we respond to the preached word with our declaration of faith in our Apostles' Creed. So now let's stand as we declare what we believe together.